The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity now to consider a passage that is about what that song was about, your great work, your great work. Let us never get so familiar with it that we forget that it is a great work that you have done and are doing to save the world. People like us, people who live here and have our hopes and concerns and our needs and our failures and sins and fears, and people who live in Istanbul and who have different concerns and fears and needs but are people just the same, who you have your eye on. And I want to pray for those two guys in particular that we just heard Mark mention. I don't know what their names actually were. You know who they are. Would you save them? Would you save their families? Would you save people around them? Would you save Turks who have no idea who you are? Live in a city of 15 million people in the city of Istanbul, however many millions of people live there and have no idea who you are. Would you cause your gospel to run? And the message that we're going to see in this passage today is a great work, your work to save the world. A people from every tongue and tribe and nation. People named Steve and named Mehmet, both. Do a work, Lord, to save the nations and give them to your son. Thank you for letting us be a part of that in some small way with the Moronic family. And I pray that you would that you would take them in, in the whatever future you have for them, that you would give them life and health now, encouragement now, and direction for the future. And for us, too, partnered with them in some way or with others in other ways. Lord, use us in your great work to save the world. And now refresh our ears and our hearts with the truth of that work. Remind us of some little small thing done in a little town in the middle of nowhere and how it is for the world, all of the nations, every tongue and tribe and people, including, thank you, God, us. So open your word to us now, Lord, and there are a lot of things here that are very, very, very familiar and cause them to be familiar in a comfortable way, not in an old, boring way. Familiar in a way that makes us rest in them and delight in them and in you who planned them and accomplished them for us and for others. So open your word now to us, Lord, and teach us, we pray, and build your church for our good and for your honor. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Today is the last Sunday before Christmas, and so this morning we're going to step away from our series in the book of 1 Peter and turn instead to a familiar, probably very familiar, Christmas-related passage in the book of Micah. 
an Old Testament prophet. Micah is called one of those minor prophets, which means that his book is just smaller, not less important, just smaller. And so therefore, it's found at the end of the Old Testament, maybe 20, 25 pages from, from the back if you're, as you're looking for it. Micah, the prophet, ministered in Jerusalem during the same period that the prophet Isaiah did, about 750 to 700 B.C., which is about 100 or 150 years before Jerusalem finally fell to the Babylonians. At the time, Assyria was the main threat, and Assyria was about to carry away the northern part of Israel. You'll recall at this time, Israel was divided into two parts, the northern part, ten tribes called Israel, and Assyria is about to destroy them under God's judgment. And then the modern, the, the, the bottom half, the, the part that lasted a little longer, called Judah, the capital city of Jerusalem is there, and that's where Micah is. And things there were not as bad as they would be, but they were in decline. Spiritually, they were following the ways of Israel in the north and moving away from God, and so God was beginning to speak to them in stern ways, calling them back. And the book of Micah has a mix of, of two messages. One, a, a message of, of coming judgment if the people do not turn, a judgment that will end finally in the exile, sending them away in captivity to Babylon, but also a message of hope about how after that, at some point after that, God would draw them back and would draw people together and would bring them to a, a place of deliverance and salvation. So there's a message of hope and a message of warning kind of woven together all throughout the book of Micah. Chapter 4 contains both of those themes. Verses 6 to 8 are the words of promise, and then 9 to 10, right after him, words of warning. They're going to lose their king and suffer for a time using this image of, of a woman in labor. A fitting image because often that's a time of trouble followed by something good at the end. There's going to be trouble leading even to exile in Babylon followed by the good of God's deliverance at the end. Back and forth it goes, and our passage in chapter 5 even starts in a similar way. It begins on a low note before it changes to the positive. And what we find here in chapter 5 is the promise that God's going to send the shepherd that we need, born in Bethlehem. So let me read Micah 5, verses 1 to 6, and then I'll quickly pass back through the passage just to pull out a couple of the details so that we understand the basic flow of it. And then we'll make two observations that are particularly applicable to us here at Christmas. So this is Micah 5, beginning in verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old. From ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. 
For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Micah 5. In the short term, as you see, it begins, things are bad. Micah calls in the city of Jerusalem to muster its troops, gather your armed forces because we are under siege. The enemy is encamped all around trying to destroy the city. The enemy that God has brought as a way of disciplining them, and they are so weak, the verse concludes, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. They don't kill him. This is, the judge is the king of Israel. They don't kill him. This is, this is a humiliation. Not killed. The city is overtaken, and the king is brought out and so degraded that the enemies take a rod and they just strike him on the cheek. So there. That shows you who's in charge, and then they leave him. It's a low point. This, this king is so weak, he's turned away from the Lord, which is why he's weak. But, verse 2, another one's coming. Another ruler from of old. One who's different, who's coming from Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is a tiny place, so small it says, that when the, the, the written allotment of all the land was made and there were over a hundred places named that would be allotted to Judah, Bethlehem wasn't even mentioned. It's, it's over a hundred names of places. Bethlehem's so small, didn't you make the top hundred? It's, not, it's a nothing place. But it was the place that the great King David came from long ago, 250 some years before, in fact. And one like him is going to come, a new ruler. But until then, we see this image again of the woman in labor. She is going to suffer for some time. That's the time of the exile when they're going to be cast out into Babylon hundred and some years from now. They're going to live in that period of time, in this period of pain for some time until there's a deliverance that happens. And this new ruler comes. And then, verse 3, the rest of the brothers, the people of this ruler, they shall return to the people of Israel. Now, if you look at that, you notice there's two groups of people. People of Israel, this, this faithful group. And then when the ruler comes, another group is going to be brought and they're going to be joined together as one. We don't get a lot of the details here in the Old Testament, but with New Testament eyes, we can look back and we can see there, there's a, there's a drawing together of a faithful remnant of Israel with an, a people who weren't faithful and even who were Gentiles brought together to make a new people. That's coming in the future. When this new ruler comes and, verse 4, stands to shepherd the flock, verses 5 and 6, and put down all of the enemies that might rise against them. And even actually to move this people of God, if you notice, they're not just going to play defense, they're going to play offense also. They're going to move against the land of Assyria. You can kind of see in there some echoes of the people of God under the shepherd moving out into the nations. There are a lot of things going on here in this passage. But the key one is about the shepherd who's going to come and stand to lead and bless the people of God. 
is going to come from Bethlehem. And that's what draws our focus this morning. So, two observations about this passage that was written centuries ago, but has some helpful reminders, and I hope points that are more than just reminders, a couple of points that will cause us to to rest, hope in what God has done and is doing, and experience that. So, here's two observations drawn from Micah 5. First, God has promised, God has promised and delivered a great shepherd for his people, Christ. God has promised and delivered a great shepherd for his people, Christ. From his goodness and from his mercy and from his love for his people, God made a promise to raise up a great shepherd who's the one that we need. And he kept the promise. Here in Micah 5, he describes his origins as coming from Bethlehem, this little bitty town. From there, if you look at the end of verse 2, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So God's going to raise up from this insignificant place an important and great ruler, but he's not a ruler who's going to be for himself. And interestingly, you might, you might think, as, as you kind of move through this, we might think it's a ruler for us. And that's true, but not first for us. God's raising up a ruler for himself, which is really interesting. As you think about this, and I'm, kind of wanna, I'm putting this here at the front so that you kind of have it over here to hold in the back of your mind. We're going to talk about what the ruler is and what the ruler does, but keep in mind all along that all of this that's for us was for God. In other words, God had a plan and a purpose to do all of this for us. And God said, given that I want to accomplish it, I need to get for myself a ruler who can do that. Not one of these guys, a different sort of one. I will get for myself one who can accomplish my purpose for this people. All that we're reading about and all that you're going to hear about and I hope be reminded of and come to rest in, you should be thinking, God wanted that for me. God wanted, I want that, but God wanted that for me. And so God got himself a ruler who could do it. And could do it in a way that honored God as he blessed me. God is for you in this. It's his purpose to find for himself a ruler. One like David from of old, who's good. How good? Well, verse 4. Feel the language here as it kind of like takes off, like a, a plane off the ground and kind of soars. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Coming out of Bethlehem, this this little bitty town in the middle of nowhere, coming out of Bethlehem, born in a shed, laid in a cattle trough, raised in poverty, with dirt perpetually under his fingers, under his fingernails, that's so low and so ordinary and so plain that you would be surprised to find that one Standing to reign 
That's the punch of the passage. Stand, not just once, to continually stand. This one is going to be raised up and is going to stand and tell everyone else, sit down. That's how it's supposed to feel a little bit. Now, I'm going to temper that in a second. I'm going to temper it in a really, really important way in a second. But feel it first. He's going to stand and tell everyone else to sit down forever. Because he's the one who's going to stand forever. And he's going to occupy the place of rule, and he will shepherd. Which sometimes we feel as kind of like a soft word, and there is a bit of dearness to that word, but realize that the word shepherd was used for the kings of Israel and for the kings of many other countries too because it's actually a, rule, a word about rule. It's a word about leadership. It connects to shepherding because if you look at a shepherd over a flock of sheep, the shepherd is in charge of the sheep, but in charge for the good of the flock, right? To sustain the flock, to keep it away from danger, to protect it from threats, to lead it to where it can be fed and watered and nourished. He is for the flock, for sure, but there's no like shared authority here between shepherd and sheep. One stands, the others don't. So shepherding is about rule and care, care caring rule. But he will shepherd the flock not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of his name. Two phrases here that have a lot of overlap that as, as the kind of the language soars, we've got to see what's the shepherd, what is our shepherd like, and how does he rule? The important tempering. Because this has to be tempered. Th think about this. If you, if you hear and you feel and I say rule and sit down, if that's harsh or brutal or evil, we're in trouble. Because there's no rivaling. The sheep don't get together and overthrow the shepherd. Can't. If that rule has evil behind it, we are doomed. And one of the constant, a little aside here, one of the constant techniques of the enemy, Satan, is to convince you that actually that does have evil behind it. I knew it all along. I best not submit to that ruler. I best try to rival him because, this is the whispering in your ear, because when he says rule, it is mean and stern and about evil and going to put you down, so watch out. Somebody wants you to believe that, and that is not true. But if you believe that, you'll run. You'll fight. You'll resist rather than say, please shepherd me. He shepherds, he stands to rule and tells everyone to sit down because he shepherds in the strength of the Lord, not in his own strength. You look at this one and you see a leader who says, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. So give me strength and help me to shepherd this people in front of me. Help me to shepherd. Give me the strength. And implied in that is, God will not give the strength for evil. God will not give the power to shepherd 
for this own king's bad influences, for his evil desires. He asked the shepherd of the strength of the Lord for the, for the good desires of the Lord. That is, in the majesty of his name. The second phrase. Now, when you hear majesty of his name, what do you think of? What, what do you picture? I find, for me, when I hear majesty of his name or when you hear something like the majesty of his glory or some, some phrase like that, it kind of like soars and what I see is something grand and big and stunning, captivating maybe, alarming maybe, but something big and other and transcendent, majestic. So if that's what you see when you hear that terminology, that's part of the picture, but there's something else that is in the majesty of the name of God. The majesty shows certainly his splendor and his awesome holiness and his impartial rule of justice. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be twisted and turned. He is high and exalted, certainly. But the Bible repeatedly wants to lift up in our eyes majesty in meekness. And in part, that's why Bethlehem. He is majestic in his lowliness. He was born in Bethlehem in part to communicate that. You're looking for the king, right? Well, don't go to the palace. Go to the cattle stall. You're looking for majesty, right? Well, don't look for a scepter. Look for a basin and a towel. You're looking for rule and deliverance, right? Well, don't look for a sword. Look for a cross and some nails. It's, it's always majesty and meekness. He is the strength of the Lord and he rules as he stands in meekness. That should, that should run through your mind when you hear the majesty of the name of God. It is certainly a transcendent, awesome, holy, impartial, righteous God who is full of grand and low mercy and grace and wide, long, high, deep love. And in fact, Ephesians chapter 1 says, the thing that God wants us to think of and to praise most about his glory is his grace not his omnipotence. He rules. And he wants you to know that he rules in grace and mercy and love. He is indeed majestic. But the thing that's whispering, the one who is whispering in your ear, telling you, run from him. He's reigning. He's wanna, he wants to conquer. He wants to shepherd you like a king. Is telling you, Power. And God is saying, sacrifice. At the heart of the shepherd who comes, at the, at the heart of the God 
who raised up for himself a shepherd like this, at the heart of the Holy One, is a majestic, marvelous meekness for you. And that one was promised to come from Bethlehem, to come in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name, and to reign. There's never been any ruler like this one promised. Foretold, yeah, but, not, but only this one, only this Messiah, only this one. He shall exercise the authority of God in the power of God, in the towering and majestic name of the Lord that is for us, meek and lowly and full of love. That's who's foretold. That's the one God wanted to raise up. And we read that here in Micah and we say, wow, that would be something. That's all you get from Micah. Now, we live in a different time and we've got a really privileged position. We can look back at this and, and we, don't, we almost have to try to not know what we're talking about here. Who might that possibly be? Only Jesus. But certainly Jesus. Only Jesus. Only one foretold and only one matches what was foretold and promised. Who has a unique solidarity with the Lord. You read about him and it says here that the majestic name of the Lord, his God. It's almost like there's a unique solidarity there. I mean, the Lord is our God too, but the Lord is his God in particular in a slightly different way. You look at Jesus and you, you see like there's something there that's different about him. Even if you don't understand fully God in human flesh, you look at Jesus walking around on earth and you realize he knows God differently than anybody else does in that book. Anybody else there is talking about God, he's talking to him. There's something different there about Jesus. There's something different there about the strength that Jesus displays. He stands on top of the water and commands the clouds and the demons. He cares for God's people in a way that's really interesting that seemingly doesn't advance his own cause at all, but just blesses them. He walks into town and before delineating who's for me and who's against me, dispenses blessing to everybody who's sick, everybody who's hurting, everybody who's demon-possessed. I'll heal you. And I'll talk about the kingdom and the Messiah. Not just for those who come to me, indiscriminately. He cares for people and he binds up their wounds. He leads them towards life. Oh, and by the way, he was born in Bethlehem. From there shall come forth the ruler. It all fits. This is a description of the Messiah and Micah, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus. Promised. This is Jesus and nobody else, the shepherd. God promised and sent the one that we need and the one that we want who brings us 
So many blessings. Look at verse 4. The people shall dwell secure when he stands and reigns in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name. Verse 5, he shall be their peace. Verse 6, he shall deliver us from Assyria that is the enemy of the day. Security and peace and deliverance comes to us as he shepherds us. We live in a place full of enemies. There are always foes around for sheep. We're exiles here in this land. And here's one that God meant to send and then actually did send to shepherd us, to give us shelter under his wings. And that happened, remember, because God wanted it to happen for you. God wanted you to be secure here. So he sent you a shepherd. God wanted you to be delivered here. So he sent you a shepherd. God wanted you to have peace here. So he sent you a shepherd. He raised up for himself one who could accomplish God's goal for you. Now, again, here in Micah, this, we don't get exactly how all that happens. You've got, you've got to look ahead into the New Testament to find out. But again, we've, we've kind of got the end of the story already in view, right? We know. How did God ultimately secure us and deliver us and give us peace? How did God become our peace? That's why Jesus was ultimately sent. Not just to tell us what to do and be a really good teacher at that. But ultimately, he was sent to the earth, to the cross. That's how this shepherd becomes our peace. That is the ultimate display of his majestic meekness is that he comes and says, I'm, I'm God Almighty, but I'm going to become a man. I'm going to become a servant. I'm going to be crucified, in fact, to pay for the sin of everyone who trusts me in all of the world. That's how God makes peace. With us, God makes peace with us. And God makes peace between us. And God delivers us from our worst enemies. And God places us in the palm of his hand secure where nothing can threaten us. Ultimately, Christmas is not just about Bethlehem. It's about Golgotha, right? That's God's ultimate intention in raising up a shepherd for himself He's raising up a deliverer, raising up a sacrifice. I wish he can make us his again. He promised and he delivered the shepherd that we need. He has not left you to be harassed and helpless here in this world. That's the first point. But as I move towards the second, a, a question comes to my mind at least and perhaps comes to yours. I think it's one we should explore because you can look at the various aspects of this and, and like I've said, for many of us here, this is pretty familiar. Even this passage, let alone the concepts, pretty familiar. So a question might arise 
I, I see about being gloriously protected and, and secured and God making peace with us and delivering us from enemies. But how do I live in that? How does that come to happen? And what I don't exactly mean is how do I become a Christian? Although that's important. Because if, if this is different for you if, you, if you've not heard this before, not heard it quite like this before, and you're, and you're thinking about, I want that, how, how do I get that? Do observe that he is a shepherd of a flock. While he indiscriminately healed all people, he has a people from amongst all people, a people all across the world, but not every single person in the world, a people who have trusted him and become his people by faith. And so do note, you have to become a Christian. That's, that's the only way that this comes to apply to you. Become a Christian. And God promises, I sent a shepherd so that anyone, anywhere who says, please help, I need that. I surrender myself to you, Lord, save me. Anyone who comes to God like that will find God saying, yep, come. You be mine, I'll be yours. Come. And he'll save you. That's important to note, but that's not exactly the question I'm asking. What I'm asking is, how does, as a Christian, how does a person come to experience this day by day by day? Because I just said, he sent the shepherd so that you would not be harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. But I think a lot of us, our daily reality is, I live a whole bunch of life harassed and helpless. As if I don't have a shepherd. Intellectually, I do. But I live seeming not to. So how can that change? How can I come to experience this? Well, here's the point. Christ made much of leads to the experienced blessings of God. Write that down and I'll explain it. Christ made much of leads to the experienced blessings of God. So the experienced blessings of God, what it means to be shepherded, to experience that shepherding, Christ must be made much of, lifted up, exalted, fill the, the, the view of my windshield. I sometimes use that language. Christ made much of. The grammar of verse 4 points me in that direction. It makes me think like this. So looking at the last part, they shall dwell secure, it says, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So Micah is looking ahead at the end, and he's saying, there's going to be this time when the people dwell completely secure, completely at peace, because for, at that time, he shall be great everywhere on the earth. Every corner of the globe, 
That happens fully one day at the end. But of course, in the Old Testament, always in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets don't understand that the end has, it looks like this. They don't realize this. You, they lack perspective. They look like looking at mountain ranges. You don't know. That, it looks like it's just like that, but it's in fact there's distance between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. They don't understand the gap. So they're looking at the kingdom. They don't understand the kingdom has already come, but it has not yet fully come. And so there is a time when he will fully reign over every corner of the globe, and all of those people will be secure. But until then, this happens partially now. wherever the reign of Christ is extended to, and to the degree that it takes hold, there, where he is great, the blessings of God exist. Follow what I'm saying there. Christ is exalted. Christ is lifted up. Christ is magnified. And wherever Christ is lifted up and exalted and magnified and reckoned as supreme, there, peace and security for the believer will be found. Here's what I mean. Let me give you an example. Think about two Christians in disagreement about something. Just two Christians, you know, right here in our church, in disagreement about something. Just two people. Disagreement's fine. It's okay. But when it rises to conflict or strife, like we mentioned last week, that's where we have a problem. And wherever you find that, you can be sure, I'm kind of referencing last week here a little bit, that right there in the midst of that strife, Christ and his love for us is not reigning as supreme, is not great there in that moment. What is great there in that moment is me and my agenda. That's what's reigning as supreme. And that's why I'm now angry with you. Because what is reigning as supreme is being threatened and attacked by you, and maybe vice versa. You can be sure of it. That where two Christians are not just disagreeing, but where two Christians are in strife, love of self is being magnified, and love of Christ and love of other is not. In other words, Christ is not being made much of. I am. But where Christ is exalted and is great in our midst, peace will follow. As we think about then, Lord, how have you secured me? What is your purpose in this conversation? Should I say those words or not? Should I speak to him like that? Should I treat her in this way? Is this emotion that I'm feeling correct or not? Shepherd, you tell me. You guide me. You lead. I'll sit down. When that happens... Peace follows inside of us and interpersonally on the outside. Inside of you even, when, when Christ reigns inside of you and you, and you go through that process, what, what should I say? What's your purpose for me? How, how are you shepherding me through this moment? What's your love doing to secure me here right now? As that happens, not only do I not have conflict out here, but inside a rest comes to you. You kind of turn your mind back away from this and what's being threatened here and turn it to this and you see, oh yeah, the Lord who, oh yeah, has me. 
and on me bestows favor and honor and withholds no good thing from me. Psalm 84.11. Oh yeah, where Christ is made much of, in that moment, my mind turns away from here and goes to there and I find rest inside and no conflict here. The reign of Christ in your heart, which one day will be exercised over all the earth, but right now at this moment grips you. When he is lifted up inside of you, when Christ is made much of from one end of your being to the other, all through you, so not just at the intellectual side, but also, if you will, all the way through you, all the way to what you want, your desires, your feelings, That's what produces, say, peace within and peace between people. So what do you need to do then? Make much of Christ. Go hunt for him. A lot of last week's sermon could could weave right in here. Go hunting for What of this shepherd is worth making much of? Who is he for you? What has he done for you? What what is he doing for you right now? You you go to the Bible, you open it up, and and you pray for the Spirit to give you illumined eyes so that you can read and see, this is his care for me. This is his strength and his power for me. This is his majesty and his meekness for me. This time of year, I think, is a particular help in the majestic meekness piece because as we come to Christmas, we we often have around us things that are kind of um, emotionally, if, if that translates at all, that are kind of like, you know, it snows outside and so the whole world's quiet. And across the street, the neighbor's lights underneath the 16 inches of snow are like just dimly lit. They're not glaring. They're now dimly lit. And inside your house, you turn off the lights and you plug in your Christmas tree. And it's all... And all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. And it's, it's like quiet. So maybe what you want to do at this time of year is capitalize on that. Deliberately capitalize on that. Don't, don't just let it be like a, a warm fuzzy, but say like, oh yeah, this is, this is getting me in touch with something. This is, this is speaking to me about the meekness, the majestic meekness of, of this shepherd for me. There's nothing like that about Easter. Easter's about blood and crying. Christmas is about a baby in a manger at night. A hush. So rather than like try to kick all that aside because it's all a commercialized holiday, maybe embrace that right now and say, I want to take that and I'm, I'm going to, maybe this coming week, we've got all the way till Saturday, maybe this coming week, you say, I'm going to set aside a moment to in the dark sit in front of a lit Christmas tree, which is meant to remind me of the tree, 
but I'm going to capitalize on the hush of it and see, Lord, would you speak to me? Spirit, would you open up for me, maybe even in some passages like this, some of your majestic meekness, your your lowliness that is for me. And you're doing that not just to have a feeling, but you're doing that to make much of Christ. Because much of Christ, where he is great, peace comes. The shepherd extends his rod, his staff over you to shepherd you, and you feel it, you experience it, when he is great in your heart, in your mind. So hunt for that and work at that. You have to hunt at that and work at that because unlike other people in the world, this is not striking us fresh for the first time ever. Some people will read that and say, what? He was born in Bethlehem like 750 years before he said it? What? We don't do that anymore. Not by a long shot. Too bad. So you got to work at it. But take the next six days and hunt. Go to the Scriptures. Go, go to Micah. Go to Isaiah 9. Go, go to the end of the Gospels. Go to Luke. Read the stories. Hunt and think. Lord, show me Christ and, and make much of him in my mind and in my heart and scrub away all the calluses that, that have covered over what was wonderful and amazing the first time I heard it. Don't neglect this battle. Don't be discontent to read your Bible just for information and now knowing this, not read your Bible. But read it for the love of the one the information is about. Hunt for what is awesome, majestic, meek about Christ and make much of him in your heart and the shepherd will be found to be shepherding you. Carrying you to peace. This is what God promised to do and has done and did it because he wants you to experience it now. So work at that hunt for him. And if you're not in the flock yet, if you're not a Christian, come. Come. Life is offered. Come. He offers now in this gentle lowly, meek way. But he will, as the themes are woven through Micah, there, there will also come a day at the end when, when he will stand and reign and everyone who's not for him will find, like Assyria, he puts them down. Because he will reign forever and ever and will not stand evil. There's an offer now, come. And if you do, you'll find him to be a shepherd for you. Let me pray. Lord, help us. The majority of us here, Lord, know you and are well familiar with this information. Would you help us to love it and to embrace it and to rest in it and to use it to make much of you in our hearts, to make you great. 
as was prayed earlier, the Lord, only you're, you're the only one who can do that. We can't make that happen ourselves. So ultimately we cry out to you, please bring vision to our hearts. Bring yourself in fullness and in glory to our hearts and cause us to rest in you, a thankful people this Christmas. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.